This is Tim Page, and... And I'm Nadia Sirota, host of Q2 Music's Meet the Composer. Season three starts next week. But all this week, we've been revisiting episodes of WNYC's 1980s show, also called Meet the Composer, hosted by Tim Page. Today, from the archives, one of the most influential musical voices of the 20th century. The guy who, for an entire generation, was the straight-up face of classical music. Leonard Bernstein. Bernstein was such a huge figure. I mean, people who were not around in those days will not likely remember what a gigantic and celebrated and legendary and charismatic figure he was. Even when I was a little kid, Bernstein was virtually a god in my house. My brother and I would sing Candide at the top of our lungs and uncontrollably giggle at the overly operatic 1985 recording of West Side Story starring Kiri Takanoa and Jose Carreras in a triumph of miscasting. Leonard Bernstein wore so many hats. He was a composer with a huge range. He wrote musicals like West Side Story, film scores, and large symphonic pieces. In his day, he was perhaps best known as a conductor, and for roughly 30 years, he was the conductor of the New York Philharmonic. You know, I also have the sense that he's the greatest music teacher of all time, or certainly the one with the most students, because he did those wonderful young people's concerts. He'd explain music beautifully. You win. You see? You see how exciting that last phrase is? So he was, uh, I, I, I think I sound a little bit in awe of him because that was a very hard one to set up, but we finally managed to do it. This is the beginning of it, really. Back at the Boston Latin School. My teachers, or masters as we call them, wonderful people who really made a Keats sonnet come alive, who taught me the joy of learning, which I guess you have to have if you're ever going to be a decent teacher. There's also the background of my father, who was a very studious Talmudic uh, scholar, and who was ready at the drop of a hat to quote you chapter and verse from the scriptures, and particularly from Talmudic, rabbinical study, uh, Kabbalah, whatever it happened to be. He'd say, pass the salt. He'd say, ah, very interesting. Because, you know, Rabbi so-and-so, Ben so-and-so pointed out that when Lot's wife was turned to a pillar of salt, whatever it was. So I guess I inherited some of that didactic quality, which could easily turn into something boring and pedantic if you don't feel the joy of teaching as 
you felt the joy of learning. That's why I'm so indebted to the various teachers I had. The flush, the flourish, whatever you want to call it, of learning and of feeling different after you've learned X or Y. That it somehow changed your life, even just that little bit. But that's the whole point. It's been pointed out by rather more intelligent critics that sometimes I underline or stress certain aspects of the music too much, overemphasize this or that, as if saying to the public, get it? You hear that what you just heard is now in the bass, upside down or whatever? And that can sometimes interfere with the natural flow of a performance. But I do feel this, for better or worse, that when I do play music for people, that there is an element there of teaching at the same time. There is this heuristic element. I can't deny it, and I can't rid myself of it. As a matter of fact, I, I wrote a, a rather funny spoof, I think, of uh, a review of a concert of mine, a horrible, horrible review of a Bernstein concert featuring his newest composition. And uh, The worst thing I think I said was that it results in a Lenny lecture instead of, that's the sort of phrase critics like to use, instead of a performance of whatever it was. So it can be, I suppose, a flaw, which I recognize myself, obviously, if I wrote this thing, spoof or not, I recognize that I could become too rabbinical, too pedagogical, too pedantic, too pointing out of the counterpoint, or the, the magical shifts of a Schubert modulation or whatever. But what am I going to do? I am cursed with this need to teach. In some way, Bernstein's impulse to teach kind of reminds me of your philosophy as a music critic. Would you agree with that? I mean, I like to hope that my criticism was more explanatory. I got to the point where I very, very rarely wrote a completely negative review of something that I heard for the first time because I thought I would learn more about it as I listened to it more and learn more about the composer. So certainly in my later days uh, as a critic, I was mostly about explaining what was going on or what seemed to me to be going on because you don't actually have to come up with a quote-unquote verdict to get across how you're feeling about something. You know, in other words, it wouldn't be like all these places that give something four stars or an A, a B, a C, a D, an F, which really tells you almost nothing, you know, like the two thumbs up, you know? I mean... That's really nothing. What, what's important is giving a sense of what it was like being there and uh, maybe suggesting that, you know, somebody reading 
might want to be there the next time it happens. I have to begin to ask myself very carefully questions about how much of uh, the life remaining to me, which dwindles every day, I mean, and you have to begin to to be, what shall I say, uh, shrewd or thrifty about the time that remains. I've always had a problem about time. But when I had a problem about time at the age of 25 or 30, uh, when you're still, at least in part, thinking you're immortal and nothing's ever going to change the way you are or abbreviate it, everything's all right. I mean, I would go on concert tours and compose in the airport or on the plane or on the train or I wrote half of the age of anxiety in airports and trains and hotels on the eve of a concert or whatever. Uh, I can't do that anymore. It does take me a long time, sometimes as much as a month, to come off a conducting period and go into a composing period. Uh, the last time this happened was last fall when I started a nine-month plunge to finish Quiet Place. I stopped conducting the end of September, 82, and began to be a composer October 1st. I didn't write one note that I saved or could even look at the next morning without a jaundiced eye until November. It took me a whole month. So the better you become as a conductor, the harder it is to change back into a composer and the longer it takes. The better you become as a composer, the harder it is for you to go back and be chameleon-like, assumptive of other composers' molecules and corpuscles and atomic structures. What are you going to work on now in, in your composition? You've just finished um, your opera, and uh, I'm, I'm curious as to what your next project is. I do know what I want my next opera to be, but I'm not going to tell you. was produced by Tim Page and Allison Chernow. Charles Passy and John Crickler were associate producers. Engineers for this series were Alana Pelzig, Chris Say, and Jane Pippick. 
So that's it for our Blast from the Past Tim Page episodes. Next week, it's The Real Deal, season three of Meet the Composer. Look for episode one on Monday. Links to all the music featured on today's show are available at q2music.org slash meetthecomposer. Special thanks to Tim Page and the WNYC Archives for making this show possible. And many thanks to New Music USA for their flexibility with the use of the Meet the Composer name, which became famous through their legacy organization founded by composer John Duffy. This episode was produced by Nadia Sirota, Mead Bernard, Alex Overington, and John Hanrahan, with help from Carol Ann Chung and Donnie Green. Meet the Composer's executive producer is Alex Ambrose. Meet the Composer is available on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.